Good morning, Sophia. Good afternoon, Colombo, and good evening, Port Moresby from Washington, D.C. I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder Helen Zhang to discuss protests in Georgia and the Iran-Saudi normalization agreement. It's all coming up. Morning, Helen. How are you? I'm great. The magnolias are in bloom in D.C. It's all looking beautiful. Yeah, I actually I came back from a, a two week trip away from D.C. to uh, this massive, beautiful pink tree blooming outside my window. Uh, it's a really nice time to be here. It seems a little early for for springtime, but we'll ignore that. Yeah. Uh, so we're heading uh, for this first story, as we so often do, to the periphery of the Russian Federation, Um, which perhaps is unsurprising because Russia has the second longest total land borders in the world after China. But I suspect this is no coincidence. So, Helen, what's the story? Yeah, well, it's hardly a coincidence at all. And uh, in fact, I think as we go along here, people will be really shocked at how many parallels this story shares with Ukraine's. So we're heading to Georgia a country of uh, around 4 million people nestled in the Caucasus region between Russia and wider Middle East, also known for its great wines, actually. Um, its biggest claim to fame is probably that Joseph Stalin, the notorious Soviet leader, was born there and was ethnically Georgian. So between 1922 to 1991, Georgia was very much part of the Soviet Union. Anyway, but we'll come back to that. So um, as for this story, it all started last Monday when members of Georgia's ruling party, the Georgian Dream Party, what a great name, introduced a bill that would have required NGOs that receive funding, foreign funding specifically, to register as quote-unquote, foreign influence agents. So the backlash from opposition parliamentarians is quite immediate. There were literally brawls on the parliament floor and lots of ordinary Georgians were furious as well. On Tuesday and Wednesday, thousands of people flooded the streets and clashed violently in the um, capital city, Tbilisi, to demand that the bill be withdrawn. They must have been quite convincing because then on Thursday, the ruling party agreed to stand down and pull the bill. What's, what's really going on here? I mean... I can understand. I can understand some quiet frustration, but this bill seems innocuous enough. Was it really so bad that it demanded a popular uprising? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, these Georgians certainly thought so. And look, let me explain why. Right? Georgia formally applied for EU membership last year and has closed ties with NATO since the country's so-called Rose Revolution in 2003. That revolution saw a pro-Western president rise to power, and then successive Georgian leaders have expressed pretty clearly that they're interested in orienting themselves towards the West as well. So as part of Georgia's EU bid, the EU has asked it to improve in 12 key governance areas, um, including media freedom and the strength of its civil society. So clearly this law would hamper that. Opposition leaders and protesters charged that the ruling party wanted to pass this bill so they could intentionally sabotage Georgia's EU bid, which is a big claim. But 80% of the Georgians had supported it. But but wait, I, I thought you said that Georgia's leaders have favored uh, integration with the West. Yeah, so that's where it's confusing, right? So it's true in theory, but even if Georgian Dream says it's pro-West, it has consistently been accused of being covertly pro-Russian for years now. The sitting prime minister, a man named Irakli Giribashvili, has clashed with Western officials who say he's moving the country towards autocracy and blatantly towards Russia. And you can't tell the story of Georgia without Russia. 
In 2008, Russian forces invaded Georgia for five days in order to defend pro-Russian separatists in self-proclaimed republics of South Ossetia and Abkhazia. This sounds familiar. <laughs> Eerily so. So after they invaded, they immediately recognized the independence of the two breakaway regions, which the vast majority of the international community considers part of Georgia. It wasn't a particularly deadly war, but it led tens of thousands of ethnic Georgians to be expelled from these ethnically Russian areas. And to this day, Georgia and Russia do not share formal diplomatic relations. So a lot of analysts see that 2008 war as a precursor to the Ukraine war. So you can see also why so many Georgians were angry and scared by this law and what getting close to Russia might mean. Now, on the other hand, Russia's made it clear that they won't sit idly if countries in their formal sphere of influence get too close to the West. Today's show is sponsored by Policyware. Policyware is making public policy education accessible by bringing world-class experts from the top universities and think tanks straight to your browser. Their affordable training sessions will help make you and your team experts in digital trade and data flows, international investment policy, or whatever other public policy issues you're interested in. Go to policyware.org to learn more. All right, welcome back. Next up, Helen, we are talking about some huge news uh, out of the Middle East. And I, I do not use the word huge lightly in this case. Or even huge. <laughs> no, you absolutely wouldn't. Sorry. This really is a big deal. Um, I think the only reason we're not talking about this first um, is because we're still not quite sure of what it is and what it all means. But the story is that on Friday last week, Iran and Saudi Arabia agreed to restore diplomatic relations for the first time since 2016, when Iranian protesters stormed the Saudi embassy in Tehran following the Saudi execution of a prominent Shiite cleric. Well, let's let's pause there because I think this is actually a good place to explain why there's such enmity between these two countries. So, you know, what what what's the source of this hostility? Right. Well, I think unlike the story we covered last week about South Korea and Japan, most people won't be surprised to learn that Iran and Saudi Arabia are bitter rivals. But I think it's still worth explaining why. One big reason is religion. Iran has the world's largest population of Shia Muslims, while Saudi Arabia is a symbolic home of Sunni Islam which comprises about 80% of all Muslims. The rivalry between these two sects date back centuries, and I think it's safe to say Iran and Saudi Arabia carry the torch for their respective sides. But the primary driver here is, of course, power politics. They are two of the largest economies in the Middle East and have two of the region's strongest militaries. They consistently fight proxy wars with each other throughout the region, most notably in Yemen, and the risk of direct conflict is sort of ever-present. They're also aligning themselves with two very different geopolitical blocs. Iran is associated with Russia and China, and Saudi Arabia has been, at least historically, a US partner. All right, so let's talk about this geopolitical alignment, uh, because it, frankly, it may well be the biggest part of the story. Uh, who, who brokered this deal? The deal was brokered by China. And look, you're right, Ethan, this is a huge part of the story. China is obviously a major player on the global stage, but has historically used that power in pretty overt, self-interested ways. For example, you know, signing major trade and inf infrastructure deals, um, expanding its military might, you know, hard power. 
But this deal shows that China is stepping into its soft power and aiming to be a diplomatic force, sort of what the US has been doing for the past several decades. And the fact that China brokered this deal between a nominally, I guess, US ally in Saudi Arabia will make probably a lot of American policymakers uneasy, even if, if they've promised to pivot away from the Middle East. The US won't be surprised it wasn't a mediator here since it doesn't have diplomatic relations with Iran, but it still won't be happy. And it will feel like Saudi Arabia betrayed its interests. Helen, you spent a lot of time in the Middle East. Any, any other reflections I mean, there's just so much in this story. So whatever, just whatever you're feeling, throw it at us. <laughs> yeah, right. There's still so much left to see what else is coming out of this story, right? It's like a geopolitical Pandora's box. Um, but honestly, one of the biggest stories in recent memory, I think, in from coming out from that region. Um, I think, first of all, look, on Iran's nuclear program, this will make dialogue with Iran a whole lot easier. The US will be upset that it wasn't involved in negotiations here, but it also won't want to make that mistake again. I think it'll help bring everyone back to the negotiating table, really. Um, and then if Iran and Saudi Arabia are on speaking terms, then that lowers the risk of miscalculation and escalation quite a lot and just sort of, you know, lowers the temperature. The other major party here uh, is, of course, Israel. The day before this news broke, the New York Times reported that Israel and Saudi Arabia were moving towards diplomatic ties as part of the US-driven Abraham Accords. Now, that is something that Israel would absolutely love since Saudi Arabia is the most powerful Arab country and it's one that Israel hasn't really managed to crack. I think the Iran-Saudi deal makes that prospect a heck of a lot less likely. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if Iran saw the possibility of Saudi-Israel normalization and race as fast as they could to the negotiating table before and beating them. Lastly, we've seen some movement to secure a permanent ceasefire to end the war in Yemen in recent weeks. Iran and Saudi Arabia are effectively fighting a proxy war there, so I think it's possible that this could help really end that war. Well, Helen, I will be spending the rest of the day as I spent uh, Friday and the whole weekend scrolling Twitter uh, for more insights on this story because it's just so big. Uh, Thanks so much for coming on. Of course. Thanks for having me. Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. A letter from outgoing Micronesian President David Panuelo accusing China of engaging in political warfare in the Pacific was leaked to the public late last week. Panuelo said he was considering ending diplomatic ties with China and moving to recognize Taiwan. The ruling junta in Mali has delayed a constitutional referendum that was designed to hasten the country's return to civilian rule and was scheduled to take place on the 19th of March. The junta promises that it still plans to hold elections in February next year. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, do you like to party? Uh, Because it seems like some of our friends down under do. Back in 1989, two candidates ran for local elections with the party, 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 uh, and won 979 votes. Uh, But there's another Australian political party that isn't quite so upbeat. So check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see what it's called. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Wednesday.